from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 25, Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. This week, we'll be discussing the return of Mothra for the Heisei series in Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth, although the official English title for this is Godzilla vs. Mothra. Yes, it's the first time in 24 years that we have seen Mothra in one of these movies that's not stock footage. And so it's been a long time, and uh, Mothra fans really got to enjoy this one, and it's good to see Mothra back. I think this one is really interesting and pretty fun. And it's been even longer since they got to see the adult version of Mothra, too. Our related topics for this episode are contemporary environmentalism and the lost decade. But first, we have our film description. Take it away, Brian. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a brutal force of nature awakened by a meteor impact in the ocean. It's said that he's being used by the spirit of the Earth to punish mankind for damaging the environment. Regardless, he still battles both Batra and Mothra for dominance. Mothra is an ancient guardian of Earth who lived alongside a powerful civilization 12,000 years ago. She seeks the cosmos and protects humanity from Batra and Godzilla. Batra is a wrathful insect created by the Earth itself. He sees humanity as a blight and intends to wipe them out. Takuya Fujita is a daring but cocky former archaeologist turned thief recruited by the Marutomo Corporation to lead an expedition to Infant Island. He wants to get out of jail and make some money. His feisty and slightly abrasive ex-wife, Masako Tezuka, accompanies him on the expedition to make sure he doesn't run away. The nervous people-pleaser Kenji Ando tags along on orders from his boss at Marutomo. The kindly Cosmos are Mothra's tiny twin priestesses who act as the giant insect's liaisons to humanity. Psychic Miki Segusa helps the JSDF track Godzilla with her powers and later forms a telepathic bond with the Cosmos. The human and kaiju plot intermix is high. Aside from the family drama subplot involving Takuya, Masako, and their daughter Midori, the story revolves around the kaiju and, to a lesser extent, the cosmos. Initially, Batra attacks both Godzilla, Mothra, and Japan. The JSDF is ineffectual against any of the kaiju, as usual. Things start to turn around when Batra and Godzilla sink into a volcanic fissure while fighting. However, when they return, all three kaiju fight each other. The problem is solved when Mothra convinces Batra to team up with her to defeat Godzilla. The guardian insects fly Mothra away, but Godzilla kills Batra and they fall into the ocean. The script by Kazuki Omori is simple by comparison to his previous Godzilla films. It has a smaller cast, better focus, and clearer themes. As are his trademarks, it emulates American films and has obvious symbolism. The film was given a healthy though not substantial budget. Special effects director Koichi Kawakita and his team built a new Godzilla suit from old molds, though they did modify it slightly to allow suit actor Kempachiro Satsuma greater movement and expression. Mothra and Batra were realized using a combination of marionettes and suits, all of which look effective. 
The miniatures, particularly those in the climactic battle in the theme park, look quite good. The underwater fight was filmed with an aquarium between the actors and the camera. Kawakita's trademark glitter effects are used several times. The film has a lighter, funnier, and more family-friendly tone. Regardless, the events of the film are treated with some gravity. By including Mothra, a spiritual kaiju, this becomes even more of a fantasy film. This isn't an experimental movie since it's essentially a remake of Mothra vs. Godzilla and has environmental themes that were popular at the time. The film reinforces the style of 1961's Mothra with its spiritualism, fantasy, and musical numbers. It also reinforces the style of King Kong vs. Godzilla and Mothra vs. Godzilla with its corporate villains, themes, and similar story. Polls showed that Mothra was popular with women, who comprised the majority of Japanese filmgoers, so producers Tomoyuki Tanaka and Shogo Tomiyama had Omori combine elements from a previous Godzilla script featuring a different moth kaiju and a new Mothra script entitled Mothra vs. Bagan. Omori was replaced as director by Takao Okawara, which the studio thought was risky since he'd only directed one movie. These changes were made to broaden the film's audience. It paid off. When released in Japan December 12, 1992, it sold 4.2 million tickets and grossed 2.22 trillion yen, or about $20 million. This made it the most popular Godzilla film since 1964's Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. It's the highest-grossing Heisei Godzilla film and the second-highest-grossing entry in the franchise if unadjusted for inflation. The dubbed version was released in the States by TriStar Pictures in 1998. While generally well-appreciated by fans, some take issue with certain elements. TriStar retitled the film to avoid confusion with the 1964 original, which was known as Godzilla vs. Mothra at the time. The only other changes were the addition of English text and shortened credits. The forces at play are mostly related to the clashes between corporatism and the natural world as represented by Mothra. The Earth spirit is angered by the actions of mankind against the environment, so it uses kaiju as instruments of its revenge. The Marutomo Company seeks to develop Infant Island. The Environmental Planning Bureau, a division of the Japanese government, monitors Godzilla and other environmental incidents. The fury of nature is shown to be an unstoppable, even wrathful force. The theme of the movie is its advocacy of environmentalism. It's frequently stated that mankind destroys the environment, which is a grievous offense. Takuya strives to be a father his daughter can be proud of. He and Masako express regret over their foolish and naive youths. It's implied that they could reconcile because some say they're still in love. Mothra fights to protect mankind, believing they're worth saving. Mothra and Batra put aside their differences to stop Godzilla. Batra's self-sacrifice is presented as heroic. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we uh, give our opinion and we discuss the film in question. So uh, what did you think of this film, Nate? Well, I, th- I think I find the ideas and the themes, or at least attempts at themes in the previous movie a bit more. This one is a better film. So I enjoyed it more than I did the last one. The last one was more interesting sometimes, but this one is still better. Watching these films chronologically, I really like this movie a lot more this time around. Although it was one of my favorites in the series coming into this anyway. After the weirdness of Biolante and the motion sickness-inducing time travel plot of Ghidorah, I am liking the return to something a bit more normal. I last fully liked a Godzilla movie in 1984, so it was time to do something like this. The movie really feels like a breath of fresh air, even though it's familiar. It's helped in large part because they have a new director on this one. 
Amori still wrote still wrote it, but we have uh, someone else in the director's chair this time, and I think that helps it out a lot. And I think maybe they they just fenced in Omori a little bit more, like they probably told him we want a Mothra story, so do a Mothra story, and just like the last movie really evoked quite a bit of Astro Monster, this evokes probably three different movies: Mothra, King Kong versus Godzilla, and quite a lot of Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah, there were some points where when I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, did Omori finally get some pointers from Sekizawa? I mean, he's still not Sekizawa, but <laughs> this felt more like Sekizawa compared to the other ones. And I don't know if it's either the pre- presence of Mothra, but I think the the humor tries to be like Sekizawa, only a little updated. I think it works. But the, this movie is is definitely not a risk to do. No. This, is, this was a really safe movie compared to, especially Biolante, but the, the last one was relatively out there too. This has a familiarity to it. And that's something I was remarking about in my notes as I was watching this movie is all of the, the familiar things, the music with uh, with Afuka Bay and the other movies that it's referencing. It feels like an old friend. That is the thing, though. I like how this is a remake of the previous movies because it's a remake of good movies. And so this is a good make. It makes it a good attempt at trying to relive those moments. One of the greatest things I like about this movie, though, is that Akira Takarada's back. Yes, I was excited. I had actually kind of forgotten that he had been in this movie. <laughs> he's in our observation room, essentially, and he's looking at things. But we get to enjoy that. Yeah, we're going to see that a lot in these movies, aren't we? These control rooms. <laughs> yeah, th- this is like a, it's the TV room. Mm-hmm. Or the tube room, as some people would call it. <laughs> this is more of a fun movie, I think, than than the last one. This has more intentional humor going on. I think the other one mm-hmm. had unintentional humor, possibly. <laughs> going on. Yeah, but <laughs> they took the the yeah. previous ones took themselves very very seriously. <laughs> right, and and this one's a bit a bit, a bit easier, but Takarada is good, and it it's great to see him back. It's really positive. Yeah, I just wish he did more in this movie. <laughs> That's my only complaint with him. Going to Infant Island and all that, that would have been, that eh, probably would have been nice, but yeah. They aren't going to have him on the ladder and all that other stuff, though. Falling into the pool and, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the river the lagoon, or the, the, the lagoon, the, 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 yeah. Whatever, whatever it is that they're there. But they're, I don't think they, I don't think Akira Takarada wanted to get dropped in the pool. We also look forward to seeing Akira Takarada at the next G-Fest, G-Fest 25. Oh, let's not forget, we also get to see Megumi Odaka, Miki Sagusa herself. Yeah, we do. So two actors from this movie. I think the subplot is interesting in this with the family. It seems a little bit like Rick and Morty. There's the husband and the wife and the kid, but then also the personal conflicts end up having huge consequences in the real world in a very Rick and Morty kind of way. So that, because the world ends up getting screwed up in so many different ways here and there in many of the episodes, when it reaches a peak is when Mothra is wrecking the hotel. And it's one of the most emotional things I think in any of these Godzilla movies is that moment. It really works. It's a really cool moment and we don't get to see very, very many moments like that. Yeah. Uh, 
I see what you mean there. It's the subplot is interesting because I can't think of another Godzilla movie where our primary characters are a divorced couple and they're dealing with a lot of family drama. It really feels like a product of the 90s because that was a huge thing back then. Stories like this. So it fits in. And the other nice thing about it is there are actually moments where this family drama takes center stage and we realize we actually have Heisei movie characters who have lives outside of Godzilla. Yeah, they're not talking about Godzilla the whole time. It's wonderful and such a welcome change. They even The actors are even effective enough that you don't think about the monsters for at least a minute or two. And it doesn't feel like it's a separate movie either. Yeah, because there are points where the... This is why I was joking before about it seems like Omori got some pointers from Sekizawa because the family drama plot actually affects the kaiju plot and the kaiju plot affects the family drama plot. We haven't seen something like that in a while. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think it's close to an episode of Rick and Morty, really. They, we, the real world consequences part, just because there's so that happens so much in the show. And they have a lot of these tender moments where, where there's a family conflict interpersonal conflict it doesn't take a lot to make scenes like that work in this movie with them they do work it's not that they're drama they're not over dramatizing it but they're also not just reading their lines they, they there is some kind of something going on there and it's, and it's believable enough for the audience to be able to understand it and to be able to maybe you're not going to get caught up in it hugely but you're going to understand and be able to relate to it somehow i think Compared to the other Heisei movies, this is a really down-to-earth part of the story. It very much plugs into the trend that was going on in the 90s where you have people dealing with divorce, especially the kids. And we don't have all these scientist characters running around either. And and so they're not talking about Godzilla constantly either. And so we don't get those scenes of just endless, oh, and they're like on the beach or on a boat or in a restaurant and stuff. And they're just like, Oh, what about Godzilla? I was like, Oh my gosh, come on. Give us something else. We already know about Godzilla. We already know about the plot. We don't need you to do more exposition. So not only do we have the return of Mothra in this, we have the return of the Shobajin, except now they're called the Cosmos. I think every time I watch this movie, I like them some more. Actually, I get you. I'm a lot more used to them. Yeah, uh, the Peanuts are still my favorite version, but, and mind you, it's been a while since I've seen some of the other incarnations of these characters, but I do think I would rank these two as my second favorite next to the Peanuts. Same here, probably. And they made quite a splash, actually, over in Japan. Uh, These two actresses were given the Newcomer of the Year Award by the Japanese Academy. The nice thing about this version of the fairies is they certainly harken back to the to the original films, but they're also allowed to be their own thing. In this one, they're and it's reflected even in their costuming. They look more fantastical. It's less of a of an island theme because they're supposed to be part of a an ancient civilization that existed twelve thousand years ago, and so their costuming is very colorful and. Not quite outlandish, but certainly fancier than you would normally expect. 
they look more glamorous overall. Yeah. And then their their costuming is is better, more interesting, I think, than before actually. And all of that actually ties back to the this very complicated mythology that Sekizawa cut out of the original Mothra because he wanted to simplify things. So I think what they were doing is they they remembered all of that and they were integrating it into this film, which weirdly enough, it works better than I remembered it when I watched it this time around, because thankfully it doesn't bog down the movie. It's not as bad an exposition dump as I thought it would be. It's referenced, but it's not. Yeah, they don't they don't they aren't going to kill us with a five minute long backs backstory. Yeah. And the other thing is, is they sing pretty well, too. They do. It's a good. It's, I, I like the song a lot, actually. I still love the Peanuts, but their rendition of the of the music in this, because they brought it back a bunch of themes, a bunch of songs from the previous movies. And their renditions of it are actually pretty nice. The harmony is nice, too. In this film, the songs are sung in Japanese, whereas particularly Mothra's song was sung in melee. Right, yeah, because it was a melee writer that mm-hmm. wrote the original. And it was also done to make it sound more south, like it's from the South Seas, more like an island. Right, yeah. Whereas in this one, that's not as necessary. The updated Mothra's song begins at 48 minutes and 40 seconds in or so. And I think that's the point where they are looking out the window together. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. But it, overall, the song is a good treatment of the classic. And the other thing that's nice is this particular Blu-ray that you can get of this film now actually subtitles the song. It none does. of the none of the Blu-rays for or the DVDs for the older movies really did that. So you're getting a translation of the song now. So if you ever wanted to sing it in English. You can do that. And the other nice thing is it shows how the songs play into the movie thematically as well. Because these are essentially prayers, petitioning Mothra for help, and also asking Mothra to go to battle for them. The music in this is really good overall. We brought back a lot of really nice themes. The one I was particularly fond of is the music at uh, 16 minutes and 25 seconds in. And that's originally, I believe, from War of the Gargantuas. That's where I first heard it. But it's, it's nice that they're using that theme again. The Ukafube music is just really fitting for this. Yeah, that was uh, something I was thinking while I was watching this, is the Ifukube music in this feels less jarring than it did in the previous one. It, yeah, it, it fits the atmosphere, too, and it's, a, and it's appropriate for what's happening on the screen as well. They're not just bringing back the music just because, it actually fits in with the story. The character Kenji Ando, did, did he ring any bells of similarity between this character and the Senshan Fukuda character from the original Mothra? When I think about it, yes, he does. You know, when, you look, when I looked at him, I thought, why does he look so perfect in this movie that has to do with all this Mothra stuff. I thought, oh, wow. That, that, maybe they were trying to evoke Frankie Sakai's character in Mothra just in order to reference the original. But he not maybe is not as much as the, what the character does necessarily, but just the, the look. They were going for the look of the movie. Yeah, he looks like Frankie Sakai. And he really the, does. Pretty close. The, the Kenji Ando character, too. Uh, he, he's the character with a pretty good arc. To his character, because he starts out as this weak corporate toady, and then he he turns around and defies the corporation. 
I, I, I like that, cha- that transition and that change that he makes. He grows a spine as time goes on. Yeah, and he switches sides. I don't know if maybe that's supposed to be an echo of Batra changing sides or what, but we, there is another, there's a changing Possibly. sides on the Kaiju side as well this mm-hmm. time, which is an interesting coincidence. There was another character that Ando was reminding me of while I was watching this, though. Mr. Taco. Yes, there's a Mr. Taco replacement, too, isn't there? Yep, because Ando is a bit of a buffoon, and the, he's always trying to look out for what the company wants. But the part that really made me think of Mr. Taco was that scene on the ship when Fujita is trying to cut the the tow lines that uh, for that for the barge with the egg, and mm-hmm. Ando is trying to fight him to make sure he can't get rid of it. And so they have this big struggle while they're trying while he's trying to get rid of it. I said, yes. "Yeah, that, that's a, such a Mr. Taco moment." Because I was thinking back to the detonator from King Kong versus Godzilla, and, and yeah, that's definitely what they were going for. And, I, and that totally caused me to have a flashback to King Kong versus Godzilla. Actually, that whole sequence was making me think of King Kong versus Godzilla, except it's an egg instead of Kong on the barge. Mm-hmm. I think this, our Mr. Taco replacement for this, he, he makes himself out to be such a victim. He really does. It's like he's, it's like he's the one who's going through all this. And meanwhile, nobody else matters. He's, he's very, uh, he's more like a selfish kind of jerk than he is a comedic guy who's going to run into a, what is he runs into the broom closet or something and makes it makes all that racket in the uh, Japanese version of King Kong versus Godzilla. Yes. It, it's pretty comical, but this isn't, this isn't quite so comical. And instead it's um, maybe more um, realistic and updated for uh, the times. It might almost be funny to bring this up, but another character thing I like in this is Mickey Sagusa actually uses her powers. Which in our last movie, she mostly didn't. She just detected Godzilla, right? She yeah, was like, Godzilla once. is near, and, and that was it. She yeah. didn't do anything. Now, this one, she actually does do a couple things. Yeah, in fact, she uses them twice, and they actually have pertinence to the plot. The first time, she 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 puts her fingers on her on her head and closes her eyes, and she can hear the, the twins singing, which helps them to be able to locate where they are. And then later... She knows Godzilla's coming. She hears Godzilla. Or she senses Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Although then later she... You would think she would use them to translate for the monsters when they're talking to each other, but... Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, because her whole thing is being able to communicate with kaiju, right? That's one she of can't them? read humans. Apparently. But she can connect with the cosmos and she can connect with the monsters. Okay. <laughs> You would think if you have characters like the Cosmos and Mickey, who's a psychic, there would be a lot more stuff going on between the two of them. Well, the three of them. But this psychic exploitation institute that they're, <laughs> that they're at, it's a bunch of humans. Yeah. But none of them can communicate with each other or read each other? I don't know. And it's all just for them to read kaiju? Apparently? <laughs> no. Because this is... Can you imagine like an ESP Institute and none of the humans could communicate with each other or read each other at all? I've given up trying to figure this out. <laughs> she has very nebulous powers. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> but she, but she can't, she, you know, the great thing about the last movie was we wanted her to be able to read all, all of the liars and she couldn't do any, she couldn't do that, but Okay. 
So a couple of my favorite kaiju moments in this one. The the first one is it, it's a scene that harkens back to the original Mothra, which is when Mothra the caterpillar is swimming through the ocean and the JSDF responds. And what do they do? They do the same thing they did in, in 1961. They use napalm. I love that scene, especially with how it's edited and then they're playing the Cosmos singing over it. It made it really effective seeing the the puppet and the fire and the music playing. And then Mothra gets around the fire and slams through the battleship. That part is cool. It was it, it made was it really almost cool. look beautiful. Made it almost look beautiful. I know that's the weird yeah. thing. You wouldn't. I wouldn't normally expect something like that to seem beautiful, but it did. And it didn't seem beautiful in this sort of artsy fartsy kind of way. It wasn't all. They didn't do it that way. It was just very nice looking throughout. Yeah, and the other thing that helps it is that I, as a viewer, am emotionally invested in what's going on. Yeah, because when you, you don't want to see Mothra go through any harm, and so you're rooting for Mothra the whole time, too. And then another one of my favorite kaiju moments, I actually found the part where Batra grabs that Ferris wheel and <laughs> rams it into Godzilla. Mm. I wrote down in my notes, that's pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, you used it as a, they weaponized it. <laughs> a weaponized Ferris wheel. <laughs> When have you ever seen a weaponized Ferris wheel? Well, in this movie, there's a, you have one. I mean, it seems like the sort of thing you would expect a kaiju to do. Grab an object like that and throw it at another kaiju. Yeah, before in the show series, we had trees being used as weapons. And rocks. And rocks. Oh, yeah, a lot of rocks. <laughs> a lot of rocks. <laughs> I love the silk effects when Mothra is cocooning herself at the dive building. That's very, very pretty. And the music going along with it at the same time, just really good atmosphere. This movie has some good atmosphere stuff going on. Very much a, an otherworldly sort of feel to it, mm -hmm. which I think was something that they wanted to do. The spiritualism of Mothra in the Showa era was more implied than anything else, but in this one, they're fully embracing it. They, you get a taste of it in that scene, and it, it the later on when the adult Mothra emerges from her cocoon, that all looked really cool. the The colors on that Mothra marionette they they pop, they pop so much. She looks gorgeous. It's pretty. Yeah, and I love the details on it. She looks fuzzy. I mean, really fuzzy, and it's. The old the old Mothra props could, looked a little bit mussy sometimes, which I'm sure was a stylistic choice. But in this one, it looks very clean, looks very nice. I love it. So, Brian, what did you think of Batra? At first, I thought, I wonder if this is necessary or not to have a Batra even. But then it might be just looked at as a total retread of these other movies and nothing more. And you want to have something more. So I think it's a good idea to have it. Yeah, I like Batra. I wouldn't call myself a giant Batra fan, but I'm glad Batra exists. It's an interesting-looking kaiju. And a nice counterpoint to Mothra, because that's essentially what Batra is. It's, it's the dark side of Mothra. Just like in two movies from now, we'll have Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. So we'll have the, the mirror 
evil version. And so, so with this, we had the same thing. It was, it was an idea that they had been talking about for a while, right? The Godzilla mm-hmm. versus Godzilla. In one form or another. Yeah, they're trying to see about how it would work, and they brought it up at various points throughout the franchise's history. It makes logical sense to move from a Mothra to an evil Mothra, I guess. Mothra, yeah. Mothra with a goatee. <laughs> the goatee of evil, the Spock beard. Yeah, Mothra with the Spock beard. <laughs> Regarding the the don't likes of the of this movie, I think we can we can agree that there are a number of different little things in this movie that you really can just chalk it up to. It was made in the '90s, so maybe it doesn't look fantastic. Category. And and part of that is just signified maybe at most by the falling into the pool fun <laughs> part, but it, it's it's done in other movies in separate places where they drop into the water, but it just doesn't look so obvious. Even as a teen, I could tell that was a pool. It, it's I guess it's just jarring because well they did do that did happen in a Roger Corman film were they yeah. <laughs> It's just, I guess it's just jarring because they're cutting between shots that are obviously on location or at least on a better looking soundstage and then cutting to, oh, that's obviously a pool back to yeah the not pool set. Yeah. In Mystery Science Theater, when they were making fun of this Roger Corman film, it was about this woman. They were trying to save her from drowning and she's in the pool saying help. And then they cut back. And then back and forth, and it's so incredibly obvious. And then they weren't able to save her. But the the joke that they did was, well, you couldn't have saved her. She was in in the Y across town. <laughs> but yeah, it's just little things like that. Another one of the the little ones that I'll kind of uh, that uh, that I'll bring up. There were points, as much as I liked the family drama subplot, there were points where listening to Masako and Takuya bicker got a little grating at points. It just, it's just hammering it in a little too much. It's like, okay, I get it. You are really disappointed with this guy. He's, he's being a little bit of a jerk about it, but do you have to be this rude? <laughs> that makes me think of another mystery science theater uh, riff. When, uh, when Bill Corbett is usually the one saying it in some of the older episodes and he's like established, <laughs> And, uh, and I just wanted to say that a couple times, but it, it it doesn't go into a, it doesn't get us in a rut, but at the same time, it's, it could have been uh, slenderized a little bit. Yeah. Streamlined maybe would be the word. Yeah. It's not just uh, the bickering. Sometimes she, especially early on, she comes across as being a little bit too whiny. I mean, I can understand if she's not used to going on expeditions like this, but I like her frustrated anger though like her passive aggressive frustration yeah that was amusing that's definitely good i like that part quite a bit i think she does like her voice when she would get frustrated it was great that was good you notice how batra sounds like rodan yep (laughs) i don't know and that wasn't one of my favorite points well mothra when she's wounded sounds like angerous yes I noticed that <laughs> they're just recycling sounds. I know you like some of the continuity in these movies, but does at any point does it feel like we're watching made-for-TV movies that they're episodic 
in nature and it just feels like an episode. I, I, I don't know. I go back and forth between that because I think these movies are pretty different, but they're supposed to be in the same place. And so it's weird to have in, in the same timeline these, these different swings back and forth between fantasy and reality and just these, this, the stories are just so incredibly different a lot of the time. I can see where you're coming from with that. It does start to feel a bit episodic. I don't hold that against them. I think, I think it's interesting, although watching them now, I'm thinking to myself, you could have done a little bit more with this if you, if you had thought about it. But like more character arcs that go across the whole thing. Yeah. Or just do more stuff, say, with Mickey Sagusa, since she's the one character who shows up in all of them. One cool thing that they really could have done if people who were psychic like Mickey Sagusa in this could actually read humans. You, you could have her read the our divorced couple's minds. They probably ask her, can you please read if we actually like each other or not. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Like, well, and, and she'd be, be like a divorce counselor, the, the ultimate <laughs> psychologist for the divorce counselor. The psychic psychologist. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds like, that sounds like a sitcom waiting to happen. The psychic psychologist. Or a reality show where it's like, yes or no, will the, will the couple survive? Mickey Sagusa's show. <laughs> but you want to, the point is, though, you want to re- be able to relate something Mickey Seagoose is doing into the primary plot or even one of the subplots. It doesn't, I don't mind that she's a separate character and that she's, she's still secondary to other women characters. I don't, women characters, I don't mind that necessarily, but I wish they could have worked her more into the plot and integrated her into each one of these very different stories that we have in the Heisei series. And then she wouldn't feel like it wouldn't feel like she's a fifth wheel so much. Yeah, I see what you mean. You want to get them you want to get her involved with the rest of the story more. Does this movie seem a bit preachy at times? Yeah. I mean I've certainly I've seen far worse than this one, but I have to admit hearing the environmental moralizing as often as it was it seems like just about every scene someone's making a statement related to Mankind destroying the environment or feeling bad for having participated in it and all of that sort of stuff that it's again, like you said, established. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> yeah. The observation room, they make a lot of comments like that. They're that's about sitting, all they do they're in, sitting that in the observation room, uh, just ruminating about the, uh, the failures of environmental policy on behalf of humanity. Well, it's not even just depressing workplace. Yeah, it's not even just that. I mean, you want to talk about depressing. I think Takarada actually just flat out says, oh, our environment has been pushed to the point of Armageddon. I'm like, really? Seems to be OK from he's, here. He's right up there with that guy that, that wrote a long time ago that the, the Earth's population was beyond its carrying capacity. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like 1960 or something. There's a little bit of an opinion that I've heard on and off about the final battle in this movie. And I'm not really sure if I like it or not. I, I think I'm more on the don't like side. The battles, it just seems like an ill fashioned three way battle and three way battles are tough anyway, but the four way battle in Gator, the three headed monster worked. It just doesn't seem maybe ill conceived. Maybe is the word. It's difficult because with, with Gator, the three headed monster, 
you had three kaiju fighting another kaiju that would switch between flying and being on the ground and one of the opposing kaiju was could also fly but he would come down on the ground sometimes but with this one you have one grounded kaiju having to fight two flying kaiju so that makes it a little bit more difficult and as was the trademark of these heisei movies they love beams because the upgraded Mothra, and now Mothra can shoot beams from her antennae, and Batra can shoot beams out of his eyes. and So that's that's easy to do. If you have a flying kaiju, they can just shoot at things on the ground. Yeah, the, the beams are heavier in this too, but that's the way with all the Heisei movies like that. Though, in their defense, it makes sense that they would have to resort to a lot of beams, because... Let's be honest, Mothra and Batra are not really going to go get into fisticuffs with Godzilla. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, the the nature of the monsters is one thing that will box you in with regards to what physical conflict you can actually engage in. Right. I do have one really big beef with this movie, and this is something I lay at the feet of Omori. I will admit... I went back and forth for a little while, but I don't like the Indiana Jones stuff. I am not a fan. I don't mind that he's a fan of American movies at all. No, not at all. And I like that he likes America too, but I just don't, I'd be lying if I didn't think, if I said I didn't think it was a problem. My problem with it, well, first off, you have to understand, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my all-time favorite movies. Indiana Jones is one of my all-time favorite movie characters. So to see this, and it's it's being presented unironically, it's not meant to be a parody or anything like that. It's meant to be taken seriously, and it's so obvious. I think if it wasn't so obvious, if, if Takuya wasn't dressed like Indiana Jones with the hat and the jacket. Everything. 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 The set design. The fact that he's looking for an idol. and then The it fact tr- that somebody's reaching into the thing, just like What's-Her-Name did. Yeah. With the spiders and all. Yeah, on and on and on and on. Yeah, all of these things. I would think, okay, this is obviously influenced by Indiana Jones, but it's its own thing. And I'm okay with that. But this is not its own thing. But this is not its own thing. <laughs> it is not. And that's why it bothers me. Because it's just, mm, it just, ah, it's like. Even the Terminator stuff in the last movie was more integrated. Yeah, it was more integrated. It was a it little was, bit more of an homage. This is, one is just. It's more of a degree of separation. This, there's no degree of separation. Yeah, there's no degree of separation. It's, it, it borders. It borders on being. Something like uh, like one of those Turkish knockoff American blockbuster movies, almost, or maybe a, an asylum picture. That's what it feels like. So it just mm, it it upset me a little bit, particularly at the beginning. I mean, all they were missing was the giant boulder. It's rather but, cringeworthy. Yeah, at times. Yeah, I think maybe for I think for Japanese viewers and American viewers, I think they would differ on what how they think how they view that first scene especially with, with him and the and the stairs falling down and, and and all that and then climbing up and then seeing the guy that's standing there and it just goes on and on it's like not shot for shot but it's feeling wise it's almost the same thing it's just one standard deviation away is all we're asking yeah any other interesting stuff that we found 
Well, yeah. Ando's boss has an interesting scene. He's looking out a window from his office, his high-rise office, and he sees Godzilla going through, tearing up the city, and he just starts yelling at him, and he's saying, destroy the city, I'll build it again. But it's just, it's defiance is what it is. But it's kind of a self-centered defiance. It's not a rah-rah, sis-boom-bah sort of defiance. It's yeah, This guy, everything's about him. Yeah. <laughs> One interesting point that I found was when the the cosmos are optimistic that humans today don't make the same mistakes that were made before. <laughs> were were people in the audience probably thinking like, "Oh yeah, right." Yeah, I think you're a little naive. What's the tone of the script at that point? I think he would probably be arguing using irony that it's probably not a whole lot different. I think that's what it's trying to say. Well, because uh, think back on this. Batra was created by the Earth because the Earth got angry that this ancient civilization built a climate control machine. Mm -hmm. So hearing the the cosmos say that they think mankind is different when, when the whole theme of the movie is environmentalism and how the mankind is screwing things up. I think it's a sign that they're saying nothing much has changed. Yeah. The scene where Godzilla emerges from Mount Fuji, because Mount Fuji erupts in this movie. Which, yeah, it does. It's rather dramatic. Yeah. And I think that's actually something that a lot of people outside of Japan don't realize is that Mount Fuji is actually a volcano. It just hasn't been active for several centuries. Mm -hmm. So Godzilla comes out of it after he had disappeared in the Philippines. Or someone says he swam through the the lava tract and then came up on mount fuji and so i said like, how could he do that and he said because he's a creature beyond our understanding oh right and yeah. that's all the explanation that you get and i found that really interesting when normally people try to come at godzilla particularly in this era they come at godzilla from a scientific point of view and someone says well here's this seemingly impossible thing that godzilla has done how do you explain that? I said we don't understand how he does it it adds mystique to him, almost an air of, of the supernatural to him as well, because he's such a strange creature. Rather than going into this long BS explanation of why this actually occurred, which is not necessary, doesn't help the story, and is overly complex and takes up too much time. And then something else I liked, and we've mentioned it here or there, but there are a lot of references, a lot of them visual cues, to both Mothra from 1961 and Mothra vs. Godzilla. You know, sometimes it's little things, like they keep the cosmos in a little box, and then they open up the box when they're carrying them around, just like the, the Shobajin in the original films. They, they kidnap the Shobajin, intending to exploit them somehow. They never explain how, but they said they're going to use them to make money. They take Mothra's egg and take it someplace. The movie opens with a typhoon. Yes, great many plot devices and, and other visual visual things to remind us. And actually, one of my favorite is the 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 Marutomo CEO has a mustache, like mm -hmm. one of the bad guys from Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah. It, it's great. So it, but they're little things. They don't draw a whole lot of attention to themselves, which is which is good. Because if they had, it would have bogged the movie down. Next, let's move on to what we found funny. There's more 
intentionally funny stuff in this movie than there is unintentionally funny. Last movie, we almost there was more stuff that was unintentionally funny. <laughs> we had to laugh to get through it at points. <laughs> but I think this one is uh, is a little bit different. What did you have? Well, I mentioned before that I, I was uh, I didn't like the Indiana Jones stuff at the beginning, but there's another Indiana Jones reference later specifically it's to temple of doom and that's when the rope bridge snaps and they're all dangling off of it like at the end of that movie and i was thinking to myself there's a missed opportunity here they should have had an infant island witch doctor hanging out with them at the time just because i want him to glare at the characters when they're hanging off of it and go mosura 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I don't know Takuya just punches him in the face and knocks him over <laughs> one of the funniest things that I saw in the movie is 26 minutes and 45 seconds in and they're noticing they're at the computer screen and they're noticing that the kaiju traveling in the water and then the one guy says Godzilla and then the other guy shows up and he's like Batra and, and all of them are like, what? What are you talking about? And I think that was just hilarious that this guy just is like, oh, Batra. And they're like, what are you? And this is great. One I have is about, about 48 minutes in. Someone says, wait to see how the earth punishes us now. And then right after that, instant earthquake. <laughs> Although you're talking about spotting the monsters underwater. There's a point where I think someone said something about Godzilla detector. Like, oh, better bring up that G-Alert system from Bialante. Yeah, bring up the computer screen. It has the scrolling text. That was so amazing and interesting. Or the part when right before our heroes meet the, the cosmos. And I think someone uh, makes a remark about how, is that the flowers? And I wrote in my notes, would anyone be surprised if there were talking flowers in this movie? At this point, I almost wouldn't. So when Mickey Sagusa says, Gojira, when she, when she either detects him or sees him, is that like when you get down to the contracting of this movie, is that, does that count as a line? <laughs> just one, one word, just, just Gojira. <laughs> I hope it's not, but I bet it is. <laughs> That's the unfortunate part. The the scene where Mothra lands in front of Batra and talks to him and convinces him to help uh, to help her fight Godzilla. Their faces are really close together, and the camera zooms in on him when that's going on. And I wrote in my notes: Are Mothra and Batra gonna kiss? Well, actually, yeah. You want the you want the internet you want the internet comment where it's like now kiss. <laughs> you know there are people shipping Mothra and Batra right now. <laughs> One thing I want to bring up it's actually not something I came up with. It's something my brother my little brother Jared came up with. He's an artist and actually this is inspired a piece of believe it or not Futurama fan art that he did when he looked at as I have the Trendmasters action figure of Mothra and it's based off of this design. And my brother always thought that the the legs looked like chicken feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he actually <laughs> drew a piece of artwork that was inspired by that. Because he said, Mothra has chicken feet. <laughs> <laughs> then the last funny thing I want to bring up is, once again, we have a falling into the ocean moment. Yes, we do. That A reprise. 
these movies would not be complete without a falling into the ocean moment. And I'm starting to detect a pattern. Just like in the 60s, we started having a pattern of this. Now we have a pattern of this happening in the 90s. Because the last movie fell into the ocean. In fact, they fell into the ocean twice. Mm -hmm. And then we have them falling into the ocean again in this one. (laughs) That seems to be the quick and easy solution for dealing with Godzilla in the 90s. Fly him over the ocean and drop him. It is a good way to save time. And like we said, it's a good way to not kill him, too. Because you don't have to reinvent him every time. So did you notice that little part in the movie where there were environmentalist protesters? Oh, yeah. And then our uh, character, Kenji Ando, was was poo-pooing them, essentially telling them, oh, whatever. We're going to ignore them. But we're not going to ignore them. We're going to go into part three, and we're going to discuss environmentalism as well as the lost decade. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss topics that were either going on at the time the film was released or topics that the movie actually brought up. And in this case, for environmentalism, it was both. And for the lost decade, it was an issue that was going on at the time this film was released. So first we'll discuss in a contemporary environmentalism of, uh, let's just say, the very late 80s and early 1990s, which is, uh, which is where this movie falls into category-wise. The way we'll do this is we'll relate this to the movie by first covering what has been going on that made environmentalism continue to grow. Then we'll go into what was done, which is mainly the Earth Summit and, and things surrounding that. And then... In that way, we'll be able to relate how the movie was going along with trends that were going on at the time and how all of these issues plug into this movie. A lot of this is stemming from the continuation of a lot of things that we saw, say, in Godzilla versus Hedera back in the 70s. There is some echo of that. Yeah, so environmentalism is not a new thing for a Godzilla movie to tackle. That's what makes this interesting. In fact, environmentalism grew substantially in the 1970s thanks to the counterculture movement, and which is something that we saw in Godzilla vs. Hedera as well. It has a lot of the countercultural elements in it. This one doesn't have as much counterculture, but it definitely does have quite a bit of activism in it. In Godzilla vs. Hedera, we had, it related to specific diseases and issues that were caused by pollution. And with this, it's more of a it's a universal message just like before, but it, but it's different, I think. This is more of a mainstream kind of way that the environmentalism is done in this movie. And because there are so many different things going on pollution-wise at this point in time, and between Godzilla versus Hedera and this movie, because it's been 21 years, but pollution has not exactly gotten much better at, at, by, by this point. Some of the issues that were driving the reasoning behind the Earth Summit and discussion of mainstreaming the environmental movement. And it, it had to do with many things that were going on at the time, including longer and harder recovery from droughts. And these are all just things that people started noticing. More frequent, strong storms occurred. Algae blooms in lakes and in other bodies of water. Increases in temperature, depleting groundwater supplies meaning one-third, roughly, of the groundwater basins in the world are in distress. Acid rain was one of the big ones going on at the time. More frequent heat waves, 
forest depletion. And back then, that was when the rainforest started becoming such a huge focus, mainly the Amazon rainforest. Melting glaciers, increasing frequency and intensity of wildfires, rising sea levels, pollution from very dirty sources of energy, mainly coal, less frequent snow and also less snow period, less amounts of it, increases in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, depletion of the ozone layer, and in some parts of the world, especially the Arctic, they are increasing in temperature more than other parts of the world are, uh, the bleaching of coral reefs, the large warm area of the Pacific Ocean and the Western Pacific uh, is causing a very intense tropical cyclones, and also the sea levels rising there, which is threatening uh, some of the Pacific Islands' very existence. There are ocean gyres that are filled with plastic garbage, oil spills, Exxon Valdez, Valdez was around this time, Superfund sites, uh, contamin industrial contamination of all kinds. And so there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of notice that was being made to these problems. And so this was driving the need for some kind of larger plan to fix things and to try to mitigate the effects that humanity has on Earth. Recently in 2015, there was an algae bloom in Lake St. Clair, which is part of the Lake Erie uh, water zone. What it was, was it was caused by agricultural runoff going into the western part of Lake Erie. Well, that comes from the Maumee River, which goes into Toledo and empties into Lake Erie. The Maumee River is mainly supplied by the St. Mary's and St. Joseph Rivers, which is their confluences in Fort Wayne. And so that is agricultural runoff from areas further away, and then it all goes into the river, and then that goes into Lake Erie, which all of the phosphorus and all the other chemicals, they ended up causing the algae blooms. And so it all starts with something, and you have to go back to the sources of these things and try to mitigate pollution. Yeah, I was a kid uh, uh, during this era, and I can remember hearing about these things quite a bit. This is when you started hearing catchphrases like, save the whales, <laughs> which for a lot of people ended up getting, I think got said so many times it became a bit of a joke. Some of it was a little bit preachy at times, just like this movie is a tiny bit preachy at times, but there's a lot of things going on with, with just in school. I remember there was a lot of it. And then they, they had us watch Fern Gully and all of these other things, but they, they were really doing a lot to inform us about the environment. And there were a lot of environmental movies going on at the time. A lot so of environmental was, everything. Yes, it was it was a huge push to to get environmentalism and, and get it get people to be more environmentally conscious. Yeah, actually, one of the one of the first environmentalist movies that I can remember watching was actually Star Trek Four. Again, going back to the whole whale thing because that's what that one was about. Uh, it had a bit of a anti whaling message to it. So I th I think that's the the one of the messages they were trying to get across, but I do remember Fern Gully as well, and then you also had Captain Planet. Yes, I remember Captain Planet. I don't really remember watching it. I remember it being on television. It was definitely a thing. <laughs> I think I like a lot of other kids would really only watch it because that was the only thing that was on at that particular time slot. But it was this weird edutainment superhero show about environmentalism. What's kind of funny is you could tell, because the show was on for six years. 
which is so hard for me to believe. Yeah, over a hundred episodes produced, and our ecologically themed supervillains go from doing these big things that are going to have dire consequences to the final episode is about one of them running a puppy mill. It's like, well, how the mighty have fallen, ran out of ideas, didn't you? Besides Fern Gully and a couple others, uh, Once Upon a Forest is another one. Also, um, On Deadly Ground, that Steven oh, Seagal, Seagal movie. movie. Did you see that? I think I may have caught part of it, but the I don't know. Of All is, of the Steven Seagal movies kind of blend together. The ending together. of it is one of the most epically cheesy, preachy environmentalist speeches I've ever heard in my natural life. Steven Seagal at his maybe funniest it's you it's so preachy you can't even take it seriously at all and and it's just him reading this speech at the end and he does that thing where it's like a mumble talk yeah too and that's even makes it even more comical (laughs) it's so bad but there was another one there was a documentary film called baraka there was also another movie which uh or yeah a documentary which was called deadly deception and that was, uh, it won an, a documentary Academy Award. And so, like, Deadly Deception was 91. Baraka was 92. On Deadly Ground was 94. Once Upon a Forest was 93. Gully was 92. Captain Planet came out in 90. Exxon Valdez was 1989. And then we have our first International Earth Day, 1990. And then the Rio de Janeiro Climate Summit was in 1992. Everything was going on in late eighties, early nineties. Really, the the Star Trek movie was one of the earliest movies. Yeah, that, that, that was eighty six. Nineteen eighty six. Yeah, so that was um, ahead of its time by a little bit. A little bit. And so this movie really fits in to this time period extremely well. Oh, it is nailed mm-hmm. into its time period. <laughs> All of these environmental concerns led to the Rio Conference, which uh, that's what they call the Earth Summit. And which took place in uh, Brazil. Which took place June 3rd through the 14th in 1992, just six months before the movie was released. So it was in production when this was all going on. This was all an effort to build a roadmap for how to improve the environment and how to, especially to reduce the impact of uh, human activity on the environment. And there were a lot of people at this thing. It was gigantic. 172 governments from all over the world participated. 116 of them sent their heads of state there. It was very big. I remember even then when I was smaller, very younger, I remember all the news that was coming out about it. It was very highly covered. Yeah. And then there were 2,400 people from non-governmental organizations there. Yes. The NGO presence was huge. And then an, an additional 17,000 people who had consultative status at this thing and met at, a, at another forum. So the main things that they were trying to promote were alternative energy, more use of public transportation, reduction of pollution levels back to uh, – they would use benchmarks of previous years and try to get back to the – a lot of times it's the 1990 level – and also to watch water levels – and be aware of how much water was being used because we only have a finite amount of it that we can use. And that all equated to get everybody aware of their situation more. Instead of just using resources, we have to start... What was the other part of it? I remember reduce, reuse, recycle. 
Oh, yeah. And, and that's another part of an, an awareness campaign that was very uh, extensive. And, and now, years and years later, even in this town, we have curbside recycling mm-hmm. services, which is it, that's been in place since the early 90s, actually. And in a lot of the, the small cities that I grew up around, they would have recycling centers. So people would come over there with bags of stuff and throw it into the appropriate dumpster, and then somebody would come pick them up at certain points of the week and take it away. And then Arbor Day and planting the trees, they would have all the kids plant a tree. They would all get one and bring it home, and all-encompassing and quite widespread. There were three conventions that came out of the 1992 conference. One was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that would evolve later into a number of different treaties. The Convention on Biological Diversity, which was about conserving species and giving, you know, not rights, but giving recognition to species that you're trying to conserve. And then also the Convention to Combat Desertification, which uh, virtually every country in the world joined that one because uh, it is uh, so important. But uh, th- those are the treaties that came out of, uh, out of this conference. One of the biggest efforts was an effort to stabilize greenhouse gases. That would be one of the absolute biggest ones. Another thing that the attendees at the summit agreed upon was to, quote, not to carry out any activities on the lands of indigenous peoples that would cause environmental degradation or that would be culturally inappropriate, end quote. And then interestingly, they had awards at the summit. The Local Government Honors Awards for Innovative Environmental Programs. And this was handed out to 12 cities across the, across the globe, including one in the United States and one in Japan. Austin, Texas won this award. And then Kita Kyushu, Japan also got one. And this was an effort to get local governments more on board with various uh, environmentalist initiatives, yeah. Before we move on, I just want to say that... Just doing the, the bit of research that I did for uh, for this podcast episode has has shown me that there's a lot of diversity in the ideas within the environmentalist movement, which is something I was a bit unaware of. There, you know, there are even ideas floating out there related to environmentalism that not every environmentalist agrees upon. It's interesting. It's not as monolithic as I thought it was. This was when the movement started really expanding a lot more, and that's kind of what happens is when you expand a movement, you're going to get some diehards, and you're going to get a wide, wider spectrum of people joining, and then you're going to end up with more divergent opinions. And yeah, the, the environmentalist movement is quite wide and varied uh, across a number of uh, different positions and, and, and camps. To pivot to our next topic, I usually give everybody what the GDP was for Japan for every movie that we've done. Up until now, those have mostly been really great figures, with the exception of maybe 1970 would be about it. But all throughout the golden 60s, and even through the 70s and 80s, there was um, pretty good growth. However, this year in 1992, the GDP growth in Japan was 0.81%. This was also a time at which the, the asset bubble was still finishing off it's bursting process. And so throughout 1992, the stock market was still tanking. And so this was a a pretty grim time, but it began what would be called uh, the lost decade. 
This was a period of economic stagnation in Japan that occurred after, as Brian said, the asset price bubble burst in about late 1991, early 1992, which was just a year before this movie was released. It originally, interestingly, referred to the years from 1991 to 2000, but because the effects of all of this were still being felt, some have recently extended the lost decade period to 2010, with some even going so far as to call it the, quote, lost score. Think, let's put some numbers on this. We kind of put this into perspective. From 1995 to 2007, Japan's GDP fell from $5.33 trillion to $4.36 trillion in nominal terms, and wages fell by, th- by 5%. Since 1997, they've fallen by 13%. In 2012, the official interest rate was a minuscule 0.1% after remaining below 1% since 1994. Right, so interest rates tank, and then inflation rates tank, GDP rates tank. So while there was mild recovery in the 2000s, Japan hasn't reached the high levels of conspicuous consumption that it experienced in the 1980s. In the 1990s, the Japanese frowned upon outrageous displays of wealth, so their whole culture had, compl- had changed in just a few short years. Huge companies like Toyota and Sony had to fend off competition from neighboring countries like South Korea. Many companies had to replace their workforce with temporary employees, and in 2009... Such non-traditional workers comprised one-third, one-third of their labor force, which just boggles my mind. But the thing is, is I've actually seen stuff like that happening in our local area. I have a lot of friends who work in factories, and being a temp and all of that is a is was kind of a necessary evil that you had to do. You you went into these factories as, as a temp, and then you would just have to hope that you would perform well enough that you could be hired on as that a permanent full-time employee. It. That you yeah. actually get in, yeah. Japan's GDP took 12 years to recover to 1995 levels. In 20 years, from 1991 to 2011, Japan went from having a real output per capita of 14 per, uh, 14% higher than Australia to having it be 14% lower than Australia. Talk about a turnabout. It was overtaken in both gross output and labor efficiency when it once dominated in both. Japan has since attempted several economic stimuli, but these have had nebulous effects at best and contributed to the country's huge debt. You think the United States has giant debt? Japan, their debt is 240% of their GDP, which is the biggest debt in the entire world. Larger than the larger ratio than Greece, a larger ratio than Zimbabwe. We are just yeah, it's it's uh, very amazing to look at these numbers. It's a very, it's very it's like we've been looking at the in King Kong versus Godzilla. We looked at the Japanese economic miracle and how Japan has surpassed Germany in, in its economic growth numbers and and surpassing West Germany in total world GDP ranking. And now it's so strange to see all of these figures happen all at once like this. The Japanese public, they saved, they started saving even more money than they usually do, which our economy is heavily consumer-based. Theirs is not. They save a lot of money, and 
their is partially because the wages are stagnant, but also because the economy is so stagnant. But here's the scary thing, Brian. What we're seeing in Japan has been pointed to as a possibility for the U.S. Yes, we the st- Japan has been through a number of economic stimulus packages. We've been through one large economic stimulus package in for uh, 2009, but that was it was largely successful in attaining its goals. However, the economic stimulus packages in Japan, the first one kind of worked, but the rest of these haven't as much. Yeah, and a lot of this concern over a lost decade situation repeating here in the U.S. really started to come to the forefront during the Great Recession from 07 to 09. In fact, in 2009, President Obama warned that this could happen thanks to the U.S.'s housing bubble. And then a year later, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President James Bullard warned that the U.S. could become, quote, enmeshed in a Japanese-style deflationary outcome within the next several years. You want at least a little bit of inflation. There's also an issue with the Japanese labor market, because there's a labor shortage, and so there aren't enough people in the workforce. And they're trying to get women in the workforce, but they also need women to stay at home and raise children so that the population doesn't go down so much. And so if I was a woman, I'd be like, okay, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to get a job, or do you want me to have children? And the solution lately has been both and put your child in daycare. But they're trying to figure out how to get out of this. And it is very difficult. It's it's a series of catch-22s. And so the solution is to take care of daycares and have women work and then have the daycare take care of the child that, that she had while she's at work. And then you also mentioned the public debt to GDP ratio, very, very high. And so there's huge pressure to cut expenses and to raise revenue but also you want to raise consumer spending, and that's very difficult to do. However, that is another catch-22. You want to raise government revenue, and one of those key ways to do that is to have a, con- a higher consumption tax, which the consumption tax has been going up in Japan. And that actually depresses people to want to consume more, And so they end up spending less in the consumer market because the tax is higher. Another one is deflation is occurring in Japan, which we've talked about, but it makes people save money because their purchasing power is increasing because that's what happens. Money is worth more gradually. So the government wants to cause inflation in order to get people to spend, but it's very difficult to do that with the economic issues that they're facing. Also, it's important to import workers through immigration in order to make up for the labor shortage. However, Japan is mostly an ethnic state, even though it's more diverse now than it probably may have ever been. uh, There are still a lot of issues because there is a lot of pressure to not take in so many workers. And the numbers that the UN were giving to Japan was amazing. It was saying that Japan, in order to make up for its labor shortage, would have to import tens of thousands of people per month in order to make up for the labor shortage over time. And and that's just not going to happen. Yet another challenge is Japan has a number of military threats that they need to protect themselves from. And so they want to raise the military budget. But at the same time, we're talking about massive public debt, And the last thing you want to do is raise taxes. 
And so where is the money going to come from? And so that's yet yet another issue where you want to spend more money on the military, keep your military upgraded and be able to ward off all of these planes that keep buzzing them. And, and yet there's so much pressure to not spend that money because you have to spend it on the pension system and so many other things that the Japanese state has to purchase. So this is a, a very difficult economic time for Japan. And there is quite a possibility that the United States could run into it. I don't know um, what exactly the timetable for that would be. I don't know if anybody knows. But it is definitely not a situation that you want to get caught in. And one of the things that caused the asset bubble was too lower interest rates and money moving around, you know, too much money in the system, too many loans, too much free cash flying around. And so uh, only time will tell what what's going on and what will happen. But this is, I, I would say definitely there are a number of uh, reasons why this could uh, possibly happen in the United States. How the lost decade relates to these movies is this. There was less money that... Toho Studios found themselves in because of the stock going down so much. On top of that, the, the movies end up being more cheaply made. And, and Japanese movies in the 90s overall, you can tell that, that there has to be some effect of the lost decade and the economic uh, losses. That does translate into something, as it will, uh, with any country. And, and it's it's true that, that countries that are doing well economically, they can end up making better movies because there's more people who will buy tickets. There's more money in th- that people are spending on entertainment. And in the United States, that is, uh, there's money all over the place. And there are lots of people who are movie audiences and entertainment audiences that they spend a lot more. And Americans don't save the kind of money that the Japanese do. And so that does relate back to the movies and, and just what kind of headwinds Japan was facing economically and how it gets translated into the business. And I think that also explains why, particularly with these 90s movies, there's a lot less experimentation, a lot more playing it safe. So that way they can maximize the possibility that they'll be able to get audiences in the theater to watch these. That's why they're bringing back kaiju like mothra because they know mothra's popular in the subsequent movies they're bringing back other kaiju that are recognizable because they have to guarantee that people are going to show up and by giving them something that's familiar something that they already know that they like they're more likely to come yes and just like we said women were the majority of the audience in the theaters anyway and so you have to cater more to that audience and so it just makes total sense that you would do a Mothra movie. And it's, and it's been time anyway. It's been 24 years. And actually, now that I think about it, if you look at just these last couple of films that we've been looking at, the last really experimental one that we saw, which was Godzilla vs. Biollante, came out in 1989 before the bubble had burst. Right before, yeah. Yeah, and they still had lots of money. They were more willing to take a risk. Yes, and that was Japanese, Japan Ascendant. Mm-hmm. And then... We still have some experimentation going on in Ghidorah 91, but you're also seeing that they're they're still trying to play it a little bit more safe because, oh, let's bring Ghidorah back, but we'll do things like time travel and yeah, let's bring World Astro War II. Monster back because people love Astro Monster. And yeah. So let's redo that with a different flavor. Yeah. So it's, it's this interesting mix of the two. And now it's come full circle with this film, which is 
sticking with the familiar, playing it safe. And it worked. Made a lot of money. Yeah, this one did do well. I think at this time, though, they would never have been able to predict that this would last as long as it did. Maybe the Japanese thought that they'd be able to get out of this just because they're, you know, they can do it. But this is something that at the repercussions of it lasted a long, long time. At G-Fest 24 in 2017, uh, Nate and I were there for uh, the conference when I, they actually had a panel because it was the 25th anniversary of this movie. And in the panel, we learned a bit about uh, how the story evolved on, on its way to becoming this. But it also, uh, it, it made me really think at that time, because we hadn't done the episode for this yet, by far, I, I went back to Nate to report what I had had said, but when I was in there, I, I asked the question, sometimes Godzilla movies are anchored into the time period that they were made. In 1992, there was a huge focus on environmentalism in school that I remember, and I brought up, at that time, I brought up Ferngully and the Rio de Janeiro conference, and I said, do you think it's because that was what was going on at the time? The answer in, in the panel was resoundingly yes, that this was uh, safely plugged into this time period and into this the environmentalist movement that was going on. Most people in the panel liked it. Most people that were uh, in the panel that visited it, they liked it. The movie's looked at as a real positive because of how well it performed and, and how well it, it resonated with the female audience. And I think that, that those, are, those are two of its bigger strengths. And I think it's probably my favorite one out of the Heisei series, maybe? Interesting. I think it might be. Speaking of safer movies... Yep, we have yet another classic kaiju returning in our next film, which will be Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff for pledging at the kaiju visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara, 